They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Decentralized Revolution. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. Before I tell you about our guest today, I need to tell you about the Mises Pack money bomb coming up on August 20th. This was originally scheduled for March 29th, but we decided to hold off until now because of all the COVID stuff. And we thought, what better day to have it than August 20th, which happens to be Ron Paul's 85th birthday. So on that day, we'll be uh, doing a big live stream on Facebook. I think it's a Friday. Uh, so that uh, afternoon and evening, I think we'll be doing a, a live stream um, on Facebook and all the other social media accounts we have. We'll have some very special guests, which we'll be announcing soon. And we'll be asking you, of course, to become monthly contributors to Mises Pack so that we can continue our mission to support great local libertarian candidates and issues coalitions that promote decentralization. So uh, we need your support to do that. Uh, we'll also that day be giving away an AR-15 rifle, some Mises silver rounds and some other Mises caucus swag. So to help us out and to get registered for the drawing, uh, just go to lpmisescaucus.com slash moneybomb. And there you can make your contribution, which automatically registers you in the drawing. Current uh, contributors are, are also uh, automatically registered, or you can just register for the drawing. If for some reason you can't contribute right now, we obviously understand that with uh, everything that's going on. And, uh, yeah, so just go to lpmisescaucus.com slash money bomb. Now my guest today is Angela McArdle. She's a member of the libertarian party Mises caucus, and she's the chair of the Los Angeles County LP. Uh, she recently did a great job at a Soho Forum debate. Uh, that's why I wanted to have her on. Uh, the debate was over which presidential candidate libertarian voters should vote for this year. Uh, there was someone representing Biden, someone representing Trump. Uh, and of course, Angela represented uh, Joe Jorgensen. And of course, uh, you won't be surprised to hear that she won that debate rather handily. Uh, we also get into the political landscape in California, and of course, we also talk about some Libertarian Party issues in the wake of the convention last month. One thing I do have to tell you before we start, I had some audio problems on this one, and we had to pause a couple of times while I tried to sort out sort that out, so there's a couple kind of awkward edits that you might um, notice. They're not that awkward, but uh, if you listen carefully, you might hear them. 
Also, I was getting what what was going on is I was getting a gigantic echo in my headphones whenever I spoke. I'd never had that happen before. Angela couldn't hear it, so we decided to go ahead because I didn't want to waste her time. And uh, it does come through a little bit here on the end recording, which I really, really apologize for. And I also apologize that uh, I think I seem a little distracted in a couple of places as I tried to say what I needed to say and listen to her while not being able to hear myself half the time. So uh, the good news is Angela sounds great as always. So I think you'll enjoy my interview with Angela McArdle. Angela McArdle, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How I I just saw a comment uh, from you on Facebook. You guys had an earthquake out there a couple hours ago. We had an earthquake very early this morning at 4.30, and then there was an aftershock, I don't know, maybe an hour afterwards. Okay. It was, it was a wild ride. I don't think anything broke okay. in my house. Well, I, I'm glad uh, glad you're safe, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, California and everything that's going on out there uh, at some point. Uh, but first, I just kind of wanted to get um, your libertarian story. Like, how did you end up... As a libertarian, small L, why are you involved in the party? And uh, why, to the extent that you're the chair of the Los Angeles County Party? Oh, there's a lot of steps in that story. So I will just sort of squish it down a little bit. It's not really that exciting originally. In the beginning, I just, I grew up in a conservative home. I grew up in Texas and moved to California. And I thought, well, you know, I'm still like conservative but I don't think it's such a big deal that people who are gay shouldn't get married. And I think it seems kind of like an overreaction to throw people in jail for doing drugs. It seems kind of messed up. So I had a conversation with an older like rocker guy in my like music scene that I respected who said, Oh, you know, you sound more like a libertarian. So I thought, Oh, okay, well then maybe I'm a libertarian. That's not a Democrat. It sounds, it sounds like a conservative who's just like, you know, less of a hard ass. So I thought, okay, I'm a libertarian. I didn't get really interested and involved in the party until I heard about Ron Paul's 2008 run. That piqued my interest a little bit, although I was not actively involved in his campaign. And then when I read The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffith, that like imploded my worldview. It just, I was like, oh my gosh, nothing is what I thought. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about economics, central banking, Mises Caucus, Ron Paul, the Federal Reserve, it all sort of just comes together really perfectly for me. And that's what's got me so inspired about liberty. Uh, Yeah, the Fed is pretty fascinating. I was actually a libertarian for a few years before I really looked at at monetary policy. I had kind of come into it also as a conservative, kind of through the Milton Friedman uh, route and wasn't that interested in economics. And once you figure out what the fed does you're like is this really real and then you figure out yeah it is and i I get that reaction a lot from uh i have a lot of friends who are asking me about the economy and stuff this year and i tell them what the federal reserve does and it it kind of it kind of blows their mind i don't know if they believe me or not so uh do you think that do you think that's a good issue to um to market libertarians? I mean, how do we do that? Because it's so complicated. How do we talk about the Fed uh, to get people interested? I think it really depends on the demographic that you're reaching out to. I don't believe there is a one size fits all plan for marketing libertarianism and trying to teach people and help them understand what's really going on in the country. 
I think that if you want to talk to people who work in finance, you want to talk to people who are just like a little bit nerdier with, with econ and money, I think it's a great way to introduce it. But the average person walking down the street, I don't know that it's going to get them curious enough or passionate enough, fired up to wonder like, wow, yeah, I should check out libertarianism because central banking that I don't understand sounds yeah. like there's a problem. Yeah, that's that's the challenge that we have as libertarians is that uh, um, the conventional political arguments are pretty simple and shallow, and ours take a little bit of time, and so sometimes the someone's interest in hearing that is not very high. So that's that's a, a challenge that we face. Um, one thing I, I want to get into talking about your debate. Um, with the so at the Soho Forum against uh, Ilya Samin and Francis Menton, uh, tell us what that was about and how you got to be the the LP representative for that. Sure. Well, Jean, who runs the Soho Forum, reached out to me, and Tom had put in a good word for me previously. So I definitely want to thank both of them, Tom Woods and Jean Epstein, who actually runs the forum. I was offered and you know requested to speak on behalf of Joe Jorgensen, so I definitely did. And I spent a lot of time prepping for it and learned some really interesting stuff about sort of the left-right fringes of the Libertarian Party, I guess is what I'm calling them right now. People who support Trump and people who support Biden. Right. Uh, I think it's pretty amazing that anybody would, uh, any Libertarian would consider voting for Trump or Biden. I can definitely understand though. I don't necessarily agree with the, Hey, I don't want to vote, uh, argument, but, uh, I think the, one of the big things, uh, that was brought up in the debate a few times was the chance of your vote actually being the deciding vote is so remote, um, that, that kind of removes the, the pressure on you and should leave you free to vote for whom you want. Is that Gen generally it's a one in 60 million chance. Right. I actually thought this was going to be discussed more in the debate because Ilya Soman, who is a law professor, I believe at George Mason university talks a lot about uh, political choice theory. Right. And right. a lot of that has to do for people who aren't familiar with it. I, I recommend you check it out. It has to do with the fact that people don't want to invest a lot of their time into politics because it doesn't really affect their lives that much. At least that's what they think. So I actually think this is a great way to open and encourage people that, oh, if you don't think it matters that much, well, how about let's shift the perspective and talk about how much it matters to the Libertarian Party. You're right. It's a one in 60 million chance that your vote will impact anything on the large scale, but it's a much greater chance your vote will impact something for ballot access in a state where that's not uh, guaranteed, things of that nature, debate access. Like if you just want to make things more equal for everyone, then you should definitely vote libertarian, even if you don't care that much about who becomes president. Right. Um, tell me about the arguments that you heard from the other two participants. Was there anything that was particularly challenging for you or eye-opening or, or, or not, I guess? Oh, sure. I mean, orange man is bad. Yeah. That's really. <laughs> right. He, he, he's horrible. He's horrible. He's bad. Yeah. Uh, and, that's really it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing um, that, uh, you know, that Trump and Biden are the two best candidates, apparently, that the system can uh, produce. Um, 
but you're right. I, I thought, uh, I don't think either of the other participants did a bad job, but it was kind of the pretty simplistic, um, you know, the one, the Trump supporter talked about how, well, you have to join one of these broad coalitions and, and, and work from within, but that's, isn't that how we've gotten to this point? There were no good arguments made by either side. And I don't think that's because either of the guys de debating were dumb. They're right. both very educated. They're both attorneys. Ilya does a lot of public speaking. His Supreme Court reviews for the Cato Institute are fantastic. I read three of them in preparation for the debate. He brought zero of his good arguments, not a single one. Yeah. And I was prepared to just wage war on the technicalities of the things I thought he would mention. And he did not. So what that really tells me is that these guys are just, they're psychologically caught up in this left-right debate, even though they're not wholeheartedly bought into it. And we really, as libertarians, need to break people out of what I think is political hysteria. Right. Uh, I think that people are just have blinkers on. What, what were a couple of those arguments that you expected to hear but didn't hear? Oh, sure. I thought that we were going to hear a lot more about the Supreme Court pick from Trump and how we were going to need someone who was a constitutional conservative. That didn't really come up. I thought that we were going to hear about how Biden opposed uh, court stacking at the federal level since Donald Trump had, has done a lot of court packing, which I, I'm not opposed to. That's part of the game, right? You want to get people in who you think are going to be good at the job and who are going to support your position. That didn't come up. You know, I was just prepared to go all out on these things and they didn't happen. No one had anything to say about the debt. I expected maybe a little bit more 40 chess argument because how else can you justify some of the stuff that a Republican has done that is so socialist and, you know, populist? But those arguments, they just they just never materialized in the debate. It was always just if you don't vote for this side, the other side will ruin your life. Right. It's the same argument that uh, it's kind of implicit in so much of what we hear uh, uh, in politics is, is that, you know, what Noam Chomsky said, the, the key to uh, manufacturing consent, right, is to allow vigorous debate, but only in a very narrow set of uh, uh, ideas. And I think that's what, what you see uh between Trump and, and Biden and, and their supporters right now. Yeah. Hardly anyone touched on war. Yep. I went hardcore on war. Basically I just took every libertarian position and I bolstered it and I addressed it. I spent a lot of time prepping on this and I'm not sure that the other guys did. Right. And I, I think that this would, this is a good cautionary tale for anyone who is older and very experienced in their position and they're very comfortable, you should still put in the time. Yeah. If you want to win, if you don't want to embarrass yourself, if you want to prep, you should take everything you do seriously because otherwise, why should anyone else take you seriously? Yeah. So you won the debate. Tell us how that broke down and explain uh, for people who don't know how the Soho Forum determines who wins the debate. So it's an Oxford style debate, which I think is fantastic. And I recommend people actually practice this because you will get so good yeah. at convincing people of your position and you will learn, learn to tighten up your argument. In the beginning of the debate, everyone votes on um, an, an argument, a proposition. 
So usually it's an either or libertarians should or should not do this. This proposition was who should libertarians vote for Biden, Trump or Jorgensen. People cast their votes in the beginning. I believe Joe Jorgensen had 28% of the vote. So you could, there were technically four ways to vote for, you could vote for the three candidates or you could say undecided. Right. In the end of the, the debate, after everyone had made their opening statements, rebuttals, Q&A, and closing arguments, Joe Jorgensen had 60%. Right. Biden dropped, I believe, two or three points down to like 6%. Trump had, he gained a couple of points. He was in the upper 20s. Okay. And then there were still a small number of undecideds. I believe the undecideds were less than 10%. Okay. So it's a pretty strong victory for you then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. It was a landslide. Well, let's talk a little bit about Joe Jorgensen um, and how she's doing so far. What? How, how do you think she is doing and how does she compare to other libertarian candidates in our memory? Well, this is a really weird election year, right? Because people aren't going out and doing door knocking like normal in any party because everyone is terrified of coronavirus. So I don't know how to compare this realistically with previous years of a libertarian, you know, election activism. I don't know. And it's also really hard, I think, to judge with the polls because we're usually not included in most of, in the most popular polls, but she seems to be doing well from what I can tell on social media. And I definitely know that a lot of the people who are signing up to volunteer for her campaign and showing interest are not actually dues paying members of the party. And there are also a lot of people who are registered independent or, or even Republican or Democrat. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that her core is coming from outside the party? Well, I think that we have a lot more people this year. Well, just like actually the last election cycle who are just sick to death of crappy presidential candidates. A lot of people who are very upset over cultural burnout, they, they're sick of the culture war. A lot of people who, uh, who just can't stand Donald Trump and, and don't think Joe Biden is any better. Anybody who's paid attention politically, I think would have good reason to just opt out and look for someone else. And thankfully, Joe Jorgensen is not a train wreck. She's not an embarrassing candidate. She's articulate. She's a professional. She's got a professional career. Spike Cohen, her running mate, is also very articulate. He's great with messaging. He's an entrepreneur. So it's not like we dragged a couple of losers up onto the stage. People, some people are critical and they say, oh, but they're not like famous. So it doesn't matter. They're totally respectable, responsible people. And that I think is what makes a great candidate. How do you, how do you think the ticket's going to do in the fall? Uh, in 2016, I think the uh, Gary Johnson got more votes than any libertarian candidate ever had. And uh, uh, was a pretty good showing, but we didn't see a lot of those people, you know, come to join the party or whatever. And I, is it, I, I thought Gary would not do as well as he did because of the either or type uh, binary argument that everybody was into, even though there were two really, really bad candidates. And I still think the same thing this year. I'm, I'm pessimistic, not because of necessarily anything the Jorgensen campaign's doing, but just the overall climate of the election. I think people are going to, 
um, retreat into one camp or another. Do, do you, am I wrong there? Or, or what, how do you think that uh, uh, Joe, what her vote total uh, might be? I think that Joe Jorgensen is probably going to get less votes than Gary Johnson, but I think we are going to see membership grow out of her campaign. Okay. Because I think Gary Johnson got a lot of votes from people who had zero interest in the party, but just wanted to go to the polls and vote for someone that didn't gross them out. And I totally respect that. And I think that is absolutely a legitimate way to vote. But I think with the Joe Jorgensen campaign, people won't recognize her name as much. So they might be less inclined to vote for her if they've never heard of her. But the people who've looked into her are going to be more fired up about the party and actually want to continue. Right. So we right. lose, you know, I take it as a win. Right. And that's right. the, I think the main thing that libertarian candidates should focus on is is the message because if you you know going back to the uh, nick sarwark versus dave smith debate that nick was talking a lot about oh well we just whoever gets the most whoever can get the most votes because that'll help the party for ballot access but you know you you mentioned ron paul earlier so many people were turned on to libertarianism by that message because he focused on the message and not telling people what he thought they wanted to hear. So uh, I, I think especially Spike, but Joe, to a lesser extent, I think they're doing a pretty good job staying on message. Yeah, because what is the purpose of the party? It's not like a board game where we're just trying to win. We're trying right. to actually promote liberty, freedom, sound money, property rights, economics. We're not just saying, oh, we're the green piece on the board and we got to get to the end. And I think that when we get so caught up in winning and, you know, winning is good, obviously that's what we want to do. But when that becomes all we care about, then we lose the whole purpose of what we're doing. And I don't think that in the, the Nick versus Dave debate, you know, I, I don't think that Nick carried the message of principle very well. No. He just carried win and it just, it was a bad look. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you brought up during your debate was uh, the Republican Liberty Caucus, Freedom Caucus, things like that. In other words, libertarians, small L, working within the Republican Party. How do you think, um, do you think there's a few of them left, Massey, Rand Paul? Do, is there a future for that? Or are they going to, are most small L libertarians going to realize that the that the Republicans are not their home either? Well, as I mentioned in the debate, I think that Trump's populism has absolutely destroyed the RLC, and that is unfortunate. Yep. And I don't see a strong future for it. I I would love to be wrong, and I think that it can make a comeback, but I don't think that we're going to see that if Donald Trump is reelected. Right. I think that people who are inclined to liberty but not committed are going to toe the party line because they want to get reelected. They care more about winning. So people like Thomas Massey and Rand Paul are always going to be the odd man out. And I, I really hope, you know, that they hold on to their seats and that they influence more people to have integrity, but I'm not confident that we're going to see much integrity from the RLC over the next four years. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about the activism that you've been doing out in California. Uh, I know a couple of months ago uh, you were, uh, doing some organizing or something regarding the stay at home orders um, and uh, and the coronavirus stuff. What were you doing then and how are things in California now? 
Oh, well, it's been really, uh, it's actually been really exciting. So we went under stay at home orders in March. I don't even remember what date because we've had so many orders, but it was around March 20th, I believe. And we've been on and off of lockdown measures to some varying degree ever since. Nothing has re fully reopened it, it in any way. So I've just been organizing protests. We've had two protests. The first one against the lockdown was held at City Hall in late April. And we had 750-ish people there. It was fantastic. We cleaned it up nicer than it was there, you know, when we appeared. It was a great crowd. It was good vibes. Yeah, there were a lot of Trump people there too. But you know who else showed up? Illegal immigrants who don't qualify for unemployment. Yeah. Turns out that the lockdown has actually impacted a lot of people's lives in a negative way. Well, you're right. I, I think that we're going to be seeing the effects of this for years and years to come with the economy and what it's done to people's mental health and, and things like that. All right. Where do you see this, uh, the coronavirus stuff going over the next uh, few months? Are we still going to be wearing masks at Christmas or next year? Oh, I think that there are definitely going to be some people who are still wearing masks at Christmas time and probably into January. Uh, I'm not wearing a mask at all. I, if I absolutely have to, then I'm wearing this really thin, you know, scarf just so I can get in an Uber or whatever. It's completely sheer and see-through. Right. And I think that most people who are not far left are sort of opting out at this point and just doing it out of, you know, compliance. But I don't anticipate that California is going to be lifting its orders until it absolutely has to do so. Right. I imagine that they will probably in California insist people wear masks until there's some sort of vaccine and that will right. be pushed to be mandatory because that's the trend already in California. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the overall climate there in California for uh, libertarians. How is the, how is the party doing and is the fact that the government in California seems to get bigger and bigger and more intrusive all the time. Is that, helping drive people into looking at us? Yes. Yes, but it's a two-part, it's a two-edged sword. The worse the government gets, the more people are inclined to liberty, but then people who have been libertarians for a long time move out because they just can't take it anymore, yeah. especially because a lot of them are entrepreneurs, the taxes, they're trying to raise families, and they're just like, we're going somewhere else. So I guess what we're seeing is sort of a cyclical change in the party right now. We see a lot of new members, which is great. And then we see a lot of people who've been in the party a long time just saying, I got to, I got to get, I got to bail. I can't do it anymore. And that's bail on California, not bail on the party. Right. They're moving to Arizona, Texas, Ohio, just any, the Midwest, Arizona. Right. Yeah. I don't know why anybody would move to Ohio. That's where I am. And uh, um, uh, I, there's that it, Ohio has been on the decline for quite a while now, but uh, I suppose compared to California, it's not as bad. Um, tell me about, um, I think you've had something to do with um, talking about uh, this bill, AB5 out in California. Explain what that is and, and what effect that's having. Is that the, that the went through, right? The independent contractor bill. Right. Well, yes, it went through. And we thought that it was just going to completely decimate independent contractors. And it sort of did initially. But now there are a lot of lawsuits. And the economy is in this weird limbo 
So I don't really know what the impact is right now. It was going to be very bad. It initially was very bad, but now everything is bad. So it's hard to say what's going to happen. I do think one thing that's good is, is about one good thing about the lockdown and Corona crash, whatever we want to call it, is that it is forcing government to lift stupid restrictions. And that is helping businesses. And I hope that those lifts can stay long term. Yeah, I, I, I hope so too. What did the what does the bill actually say? It, it basically how does it limit people's ability to work as independent contractors and, and gig economy stuff? Well, it's kind of a complicated legal analysis, but it basically forces anyone who employs you long term, who has any employees that would do anything similar to the tasks that you're doing, it forces those employers to make you employees. Okay. So I work at a law firm. I'm an independent contractor, but I don't technically meet the three prong test. I'll argue my, you know, till I'm blue in the face about in court about the fact that I technically do because no one else at my law firm has my skill level. Right. But you need to be completely independent make your own hours, not basically not be beholden to your employer or the person cutting your check at all, not provide any skill that someone else in the office provides. And uh, there's, there's a little bit more nuance to it. And it all has to do with a California Supreme Court decision that was handed down the previous year. So it's really wrecked musicians, people who are people who I'm trying to think of a really good scenario here. Let's say that you are a local band that plays at a bar or venue every Friday night. You play a four hour set with like two 15 minute breaks. You play at plenty of other places. You know, this is just one of your gigs. It's not like your job job. Well, they're saying no, now that that bar or venue has to make you an employee. Ridiculous. Right. The same thing with strippers, girls who work at clubs, one night a week and they'll work at some other club another night a week. They have a different name identity for everything. They, people don't realize that girls who work as exotic dancers often will leave town for a month at a time. They'll go work in Vegas at conventions. They go to Mardi Gras. Now they're saying that if you work anywhere, you have to be an employee. I said, Oh, well, welcome to fight for 15. You went from making $200 an hour, you know, to now you're making $15 an hour. That turned a lot of people libertarian. They're so mad. So mad. Yeah. Is it sold under the uh, banner of like protecting workers, I guess? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to protect the people that work at Jack in the Box. So we have to screw everyone else over. And I've asked some people about it in my neighborhood, and I'm going to sound so insensitive now. But I spoke with a couple of assistant managers at Jack in the Box, Carl's Jr. I said, hey, what do you think about the fight for 15th bill? You know, like, do you, how do you feel about minimum wage? And they said, I've worked my assistant manager job at fast food for seven, eight years. I deserve to get paid more. And I thought, goodness gracious, you've yeah, invested yeah. seven to eight years of your life in this. No, let's not hold back the rest of the world. That's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, and unfortunately that a lot of those avenues uh, for them to do other things are, uh, closed down or hampered yeah. by, by what government does. And that's what, that's what really motivates me to, to keep going uh, as a libertarian is uh, that, that fight for the little guy of uh, looking and seeing how the state uh, affects lives, especially those on the fringes. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's amazing 
I think it would be amazing how much things would improve as far as poverty and uh, race relations and stuff like that if the government just truly got out of it. Oh, yeah. Especially in Los Angeles, we have a lot of people who work as street vendors. So they have makeshift hot dog carts on basically what's like a a, a mobile tool kit. Right. If that makes sense. You know, people who work in auto shops know what I'm talking about. And benevolent government finally came in after fining these people like $10,000 for operating without a license. Benevolent government finally came in and allowed them to get licensure. So rather than risk a fine that will get you out of business, oh, and also potentially tossed out of the country with ICE, you have to go through a whole bunch of hoops to get licensing. Yay? Right. Uh, it's, it's like, it's, thanks, I guess. It's not really that helpful. Tell me what you think about how the uh, recent Libertarian Convention turned out. Oh, well, I think it was a mixed bag. I was disappointed that Josh didn't get elected. I was very happy that so many other good people did get elected. I was really happy with the vibe of the in-person convention. Mises Caucus was at least half of the people present, like physically in attendance. It might have been more than half. It was, we brought such incredible energy and good vibes to the whole event. People were really happy to be there and we were having a good time. There were some weird ideological splits that happened during the convention. And I think we're going to probably see that over the next couple of years. Uh, what, what, what splits are you talking about? So instead of it now being strictly, you know, pragmatist versus anarchist, younger members versus older members, the, the classic splits that we're all familiar with, Mises Caucus versus everyone who's for some reason terrified of us. We now have people who are terrified of the virus and think that attending an in-person event is a nap violation right? versus people who are principled, care about the bylaws and aren't afraid of the virus. And that is going to be the new ideological split. And that's where party lines were drawn during the convention. We had very principled pragmatists absolutely agreeing with us. I spent a good chunk of the convention conferring with Alicia Matson and Aaron Starr. Yep. They're yep. longtime prags, and they were just absolutely on the side of principle this year. Yeah, I think that some of those arguments that we heard from the people not wanting to have the in-person convention were, were pretty disingenuous. I think they knew that... Um, uh, the Prags tend to be a little older and because of that, they may have not, their people may, well, they, their people didn't want to travel. So they wanted to, they, they wanted to preserve uh, their voting block. And it, it kind of gave, um, uh, it kind of went against what uh, something that Nick Sarwark has said is the party belongs to those who show up. Um, and in this case uh, that, that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. You know, and we showed up. We physically yeah. showed up. And today, you know, it's been over two weeks, I believe, since convention has yep. closed. And as far as I know, not a single person has come forward saying they have coronavirus. And it doesn't appear that anyone is uh, suspiciously ill either. Right. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm saying that the hysteria and the hype might have been overhyped. Oh, I think you're right. I think that uh, it is real, but it's not just, it's, it's a really bad flu, right? I mean, uh, w we can't uh, shut down our lives uh, just because of that.
you ran for Congress a couple of times, right? Is that correct? Or just yeah, I, I ran in 2017 in a special election, and then I also ran in 2018 in a regular election. Was that a good use of your time? What did you learn? I think I learned a whole lot. I think it was a good use of my time, but I also learned that it is not the best use of my time. I learned when you're a libertarian and you run for office and you are a regular person like me, which means you're not a millionaire, you learn to do everything. So I am an online marketer. I am a web designer and I am a graphic designer. I am a public speaker. I am a speech writer. The list goes on and on. I'm a campaign manager. I'm a door knocker. Yeah. You know, it's pretty cool. Let's talk about uh, the Mises caucus. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of people are afraid of us in the LP. Why do you think that is? And is that changing at all? Uh, do you think the convention helped our, our cause among people who are not likely to join us, but might work with us? Yeah, I think that the convention definitely helped the cause of the Mises caucus. The people who hate us a lot are always going to hate us. I believe they are emotionally unbalanced and some of them are genuinely bad people. And that really sucks. Yeah. I like to think that everyone in the libertarian party is just smarter than average. I like to think that we have better morals than the average person, but I've learned that I am maybe a little bit too optimistic and naive on that. And that is actually not the case. Sometimes politics and things that involve potentially power draw sick individuals to them. And that is the case in a lot of things. It's the same goes for nonprofit organizations. Yep. People yeah. think they can come in and swallow something up and make it their project and their ego, you know, thing. And the same thing happens in the LP. But people who are not bad actors, people who genuinely care about liberty and want to see freedom in their lifetime, I think that their opinion of us has changed. They met us in person. We're not crazy psychopaths. We're not Nazis, white nationalists. It's just, it's absurd to say that. Yep. They saw how absurd that was. And we genuinely care about the party and everyone else in it, not just the people in our caucus. I think that we demonstrated that really well. Throwing a party, making, you know, like I made the motion to get everyone basically to, to fix what was wrong with the online delegates. And then I don't believe there was a single vote against allowing online participation. I don't believe there was a single vocal objection. Right. And of course, the, the Mises caucus could have, at the very beginning of everything, uh, completely shut off uh, online participation. And and uh, we didn't do it. We, we decided that that would be poisoning the well and uh, just harming the relationships with the other caucuses and with unaffiliated uh, LP members. And we wanted to be fair too, realizing that even though, uh, most of us were of the opinion that, you know, going to the convention was not dangerous, that other people may honestly feel different. Although I don't think all of them did, but, uh, um, so I, I was proud of us for, for doing that for not, uh, going scorched earth on everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we sort of took responsibility for someone else's screw up. The LNC wrongfully, in my very strong opinion, yep. voted yeah. that online participation would be allowed. I thought that was totally wrong and messed up. However, other people in the party who don't pay as much attention to all of the nuances and follow the online LNC meetings, 
they thought when they heard that, they thought, okay, great. Then I don't have to fly in. And I thought that it would be wrong to screw them over. I thought that, you know, your leadership told you you could do this. Leadership was wrong, but you probably made financial plans, X, Y, Z. Let's just call out that they were wrong, but still allow you to participate. Because I thought that would be the right thing to do. What uh, project is the your party uh, there in Los Angeles County and in the state uh, going to be working on? Now that the convention's over, we're heading into an election. Uh, Joe Jorgensen's campaign, I'm sure, is going to be a, a big uh, part of what you do. Is there anything else that uh, that you guys are working on? Any um, ballot issues or anything like that uh, coming up in the future? Well, we always issue um, voter guides, so we'll be sending those out. We have two candidates in California right now that are running statewide races. We have several candidates who are running locally. I am working with the LA County LP to propose some policy directives on police accountability and police brutality. Rather than just coming across with this blanket defund the police statement, we're working to actually address accountability, especially you know with the cronyism with police unions, uh, how much of their budget goes to what. We're trying to say, this is how much damage you do. We should take away your money. Let's not replace it with something else that will do an equal amount of damage. Let's just get rid of it. Right. And then we do have a big uh, Joe Jorgensen car rally on August 8th. I believe it's a nationwide event. So unfortunately in California, we're stuck with the 930 time slot because yeah. the East Coast is doing 1230. But we are meeting in Glendale, I believe near a Home Depot parking lot at 930 in the morning. And everyone's encouraged to bring their car, decorate your car. And then we're driving a long route through Pasadena for the Joe Jorgensen Let Her Speak rally. Okay. Uh, what would you say to someone, and I'm not talking just to people in your neck of the woods, but all across the country who are, are on the fence as far as becoming involved politically. Again, I totally get the ANCAP uh, and anarchist. Or I'm, a, I'm an ANCAP and an anarchist. I get the uh, people who say it's not worth voting or uh, I disagree with the, the argument that voting is immoral and, and things like that. But uh, there's, I think a lot of people are on that uh, edge of, should I get involved? Is it worth my time? Uh, can I promote Liberty better somewhere else? What advice would you give them about trying to get involved in the LP and and maybe even the Mises caucus and, and helping things that way. I think there's a lot of room for principled non-voters to get involved in the LP. I am also an anarcho-capitalist. I believe voting is self-defense. Yep. There are definitely slots on the ballot that I leave empty. I don't, I don't like to vote for the lesser of two evils because as I mentioned in the debate, I don't want to vote for evil. So if you want to get active in the LP, but you feel really conflicted about voting, you can absolutely vote for the presidential candidate because you can be guaranteed it's not going to be an act of aggression against someone else. You can work really hard on ballot propositions. Vote against tax increases. You're not voting for or against a person. You're not subjecting you know, anyone else to your authority. You're just basically trying to keep yourself from getting robbed. And for people who are a little bit concerned about drama and the nastiness of politics, I would say stick close to local, stick to stick closer to home. There is a little bit less infighting in the local parties, generally speaking, than there is uh, at the national level. 
and also insulate yourself with good people. Yep. You don't really have to go out and meet every single person in the Libertarian Party. That is not a good way to spend your time. Yep. Work with the people that that matter and that want to support you. And that is the best way to spend your time and do things that you're passionate about. If it's taxes, great. Work on taxes. If it's the Joe Jorgensen campaign, great. Just do that. Just find what you care about and put yourself into it. How did the Mises caucus uh, do uh, in among California in California's vote at the convention. How many votes did Josh get from you guys out there? Oh, well, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but yeah. all, all of them. <laughs> okay. So, so we're the, the Mises caucus is, is going well there in California. Oh, yeah. We have a very, very established Mises caucus. So I personally, I do all of my outreach either through the local LA County party or through the Mises caucus. Plenty of other ways to grow the party, and that is fine, and other people can do that, but I only have two focuses because that's what I'm good at. So that's where I push. Right. Uh, well, it's good to hear that, and I'm glad things are going well out there, and I'm glad that you're uh, uh, in the mix uh, in leadership uh, in our caucus and and in uh, the party out there in California. And uh, I really appreciate you coming uh, on the show, and uh, great job on the debate. I listened to about 90% of it. I didn't quite uh, finish it, but uh, you did a, a really good job. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, there you have it. I'd like to thank Angela McArdle for her time and for all her hard work in California and with the Mises Caucus. Also, thanks to her and to you for bearing with me on those audio issues. If you think you might know what might have caused that, uh, you could uh, let me know on Facebook where you can find me as Aaron Keith Harris or by emailing me at communications at lpmesiscaucus.org. And while you're online, head on over to lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at takehumanaction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.